HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director here at Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with our Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Hey, Katie. Hey, Kat. So usually at this five o'clock hour, we'd be bringing you our usual HR and Happy Hour show, but we have a special something in store for you today. That's right. So rather than our usual weekly roundup of food news and special guests and, of course, trivia, this week we are shaking it up a little bit. We're going to take this opportunity to promote our newest show, Inside Julia's Kitchen, which is our partnership with the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And we're really, really excited and want to make sure that all of our listeners know about the new show. Of course, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or our website or anywhere you listen to podcasts. So, um, David, do you want to queue up uh, a few clips from that? And then uh, we'll jump back and introduce the episode that we're going to play in our weekly slot. On each episode of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we're going to launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was passionate that being able to cook was vital to living a healthy and fulfilled life. I was just a child then, and we spent many years together with the child sharing meals, travels, and Paul gave me art lessons when I was a teenager. What she called the favorite years of her life uh, 1948 to 54, when they lived in Paris and then Marseille, and she learned to cook and and had what she described as a flowering of the soul. I was in a meeting once, and somebody came in and said, "Well, we've just talked to Apple, and they're developing something called a smartphone, and they want us to make something called an app." And we were all like, "What's an app? How do we, <laughs> how do we develop something? We don't even know what it is." I remember she wanted to have. 
uh, Chinese food for lunch. And she said, you know, I want someplace that's really Chinese with Chinese people in there and no Americans. And so <laughs> when you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? Those were just a few snippets from the Inside Julia's Kitchen season so far, and of course the uh, last bit very, very famously from the French chef. Um, So as you can hear, this show is very much about the French chef Julia herself, as well as carrying on her legacy of sharing bright and exciting discoveries in the food world. It's hosted by the Julia Child Foundation's executive director, Todd Shilkin, who describes Julia's famous kitchen as being the co-star for her many successful television shows where Julia cooked, experimented, and shared the many joys and wonders of cooking with thousands of people. One of the coolest episodes so far, I think, is episode three, which features Paula Johnson. She's one of the three Smithsonian Museum curators who is responsible for bringing Julia's famous kitchen all the way from Cambridge, Massachusetts to the Smithsonian itself. It's a really cool story, and you can go see Julia's kitchen at the Smithsonian Museum of American History. One of the best museum exhibits in the world. Duh. Yeah. Bar none. I love it. I also really enjoyed episode four that just came out where Todd interviewed Alex Prudhomme and Katie Pratt, who co-authored France is a Feast, the photographic journey of Paul and Julia Child, which is the first ever published collection of Paul's photographs. Alex Prudhomme is actually Julia's great nephew, and the discussion of how that book came together is really fascinating. Yeah, agreed. Today, though, we're going to showcase episode two of Inside Julia's Kitchen, where Todd Shulkin interviewed award-winning New York Times food journalist Kim Severson because their conversation around how natural disasters have created marketplace shifts in agriculture and why she thinks that the food, the future of disaster relief food is in the hands of chefs is a really interesting listen. Yeah, Kim's just been on fire lately. Uh, on the episode, Todd and Kim are also going to talk a little bit about the Me Too movement in the food industry and um, to speak about the forecasted food trends of 2018. So uh, if you haven't been reading Kim's latest articles for The Times, you definitely need to go catch up. They've been awesome, and we're huge fans, and uh, you're going to love this episode of Inside Julia's Kitchen. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening situation. And without further ado, here's episode two, Inside Julia's Kitchen. As Julia would say, bon appetit! Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. This show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from on a regular basis. On today's show, we welcome Kim Severson, award-winning journalist and food writer for the New York Times and author of several other books. In this episode, we'll learn what it was like to be on the ground in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, the big trends in food for 2018, and in our last segment, we'll hear Kim's Julia moment. 
Stay tuned to learn what is a Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was nothing if not a lifelong learner. While she may be best known for her love of French cooking, she went well beyond that in her career. She was all about the latest innovation and sharing what she'd learned with her audience. She strongly believed that you learn the most when you're also having fun. That's why I'm particularly excited to welcome Kim Severson to the podcast, as I can't think of anybody who is both more fun to talk to and who shares better insights about what's going on in the food world and world at large. Welcome to our podcast, Kim. Oh, hello. I'm glad to be here. It's exciting. I love any chance to talk with you and also um, to keep the, keep the spirit of Julia alive. Well, I'm so thrilled that you, we could work it out so you could be on and be one of our first guests at, at, at that. So, so I was going to say, wow, before we head into 2018, I, I feel like I, we have to cover the year that was since we're still sort of have the hangover from 2017, which was uh, certainly full of news, fake and real. And I know two of the big things you've reported on are the Pandora's box of sexual harassment stories and the intersection between food and natural disasters. Um, I think topics one might not have assumed we would be covering, but that was 2017. So I thought, could we, if you don't mind, I'll pick, how about natural disasters for a thousand? Natural disasters for a thousand, Jack. Yeah, it was an interesting year um, in natural disasters and food. Um, you know, we had two, um, well, we had a lot of hurricane activity. Obviously, you know, we had uh, Irma that came through that did, Kind of interesting, um, you know, wasn't, I was all ready to say, oh, you know, all of agriculture has been destroyed uh, because of, uh, because of Irma, and it had some interesting effects, just a couple little things, and then we can, of course, talk about the big one, which is um, Hurricane Maria, and, and especially Puerto Rico, but, so for example, in Georgia, uh, I'm based in Atlanta now, so I have fallen in love with Georgia pecans, um, southern pecans of you know, the fresh crop of pecans every fall is something I really look forward to. So they're the best. Um, they're the best. They thought that maybe 30 to 40 percent of Georgia's pecan crop would be wiped out. Uh, but pecans are funny things. They Every other year, they they produce crazy trees. will have a dormant year, then they'll have a, a great year. And, and just randomly, 2017 was a really record harvest and a very profitable year. So although some... They did lose some crop. A lot of the, the trees had already been harvested, uh, mm-hmm. and so the, the estimates of, of how bad it was going to be didn't really um, come true. And, and now the, the demand is up, and it's been such a such short supply that um, I just found out this year that um, pecan tree nurseries, excuse me, um, have been sold out. And so um, people are planting a lot, and um, the industry is very healthy. Um, the the citrus crop in Florida obviously got um, hit uh, very, very badly. But uh, in response, um, in Texas, grapefruit is selling like crazy. Um, people turned to Texas when they were getting reduced volumes in Florida, and so it helped Texas in the post Harvey or the post uh, uh, the Hurricane Harvey period. So it's kind of an interesting thing how all these are linked. And well, that that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. We can just go to that now, which is. 
you know, what's the implication and what's the view for 2018 between weather and natural disasters? And I think you're already saying that there's like marketplace shifts and what's going to be available and what's going to be in short supply. And, you know, farming is about weather. And uh, it's been quite tumultuous period that we had last year. I think people are expecting uh, more of the same in 2018. You know, you saw the fires in uh, Sonoma and Napa, although interestingly, a lot of the wineries were spared, but the thing that got creamed in uh, up in Northern California with those fires was the marijuana crop. And we can talk uh-huh. about marijuana a little later when we talk about our trends, but, um, okay. it, you know, the, the wine country, I think, didn't get hit quite as bad. But, you know, the fire, I mean, Julia's beloved Santa Barbara was certainly challenged by fire recently. So Yeah, no, I'm I'm hoping in a week or two to have uh, have one of the um winemakers on to to talk about what what the implications are. It's weather's a, a crazy thing. Um and you know, when Hurricane Maria came through, certainly um uh it hit Puerto Rico in a in some really specific ways. Um you know, Puerto Rico had just been getting a you know, they'd imported so much, uh, and they were really a, an, an island that relied on U.S. imports and imports from other countries. But they were just getting this nascent local food uh, movement, and they were just having growers who were growing just for the local markets. You started to have a – they were starting to have a bigger dairy um, uh, uh, industry and, um, you know, farmers who were growing for the chefs who were cooking more local food. And that really got wiped out. Uh, in Maria, certainly like all the, anything that was above ground, bananas, um, fruit trees, uh, things just really, really got decimated. But it's growing back now uh, better. Um, the thing that really got disrupted, as we know, were just the basic communication and supply chains, which is why Jose Andres went down and, and started feeding people. Um, you know, and and when, story, you went, when you were down there, were you already covering or did you go? down there and just by talking to another chef, and a couple other chefs, and they found some chefs who had some stuff in the freezers, and they started making some food in front of a a restaurant down there, and then that grew to making sandwiches. And uh, I just saw him last week, and he said he's um, served uh, 3.2 million meals in Puerto Rico. But literally, when he got down there, there was the Salvation Army was coming to him to get you know pans of rice and beans to take out to to serve people. It was, it was quite a remarkable. Uh, operation that he just put together kind of, you know, with chewing gum and string and and his many wealthy friends. And were you already covering the hurricane or did you go down specifically to kind of see what was going on in this whole? We were seeing, you know, seeing a lot of, he had a very good social media team and he's he's very um, uh, adept at at self-promotion. And I don't mean that in a necessarily negative way, but we were seeing a lot of reports from what it's like on the ground, and uh, he's got an organization called World Central Kitchen that I've written about. They specifically started uh, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, and he was getting mm-hmm. uh, cook stoves down there. So I was interested in his organization, and we kept seeing social media, and I'm like, I really have to tell you, I was like, I cannot believe this guy and his, you know, uh, social media dispatches from Puerto Rico. I, I kind of felt like it was a little bit... Um, <laughs> I had a little bit of skepticism, and um, my boss, Sam Sifton, said, why don't you go down and see if he's the real deal or not? And so um, I flew down, and at that point, it's pretty easy to get into Puerto Rico. The challenge was getting out because everybody else wanted to get their grandmothers and their families out, and so tickets out were 
were tricky. But uh, anyway, went down, and I ended up spending a few days uh, kind of embedded with his crews and going out to the middle of, uh, you know, hills in Puerto Rico where he was, his group was sending rice and onions and chickens so little church groups could cook food on these, you know, banged-up propane stoves. No power anywhere. I mean, you know, they were going to, you know, going to um, housing projects and senior citizen centers, and people would be like, oh, there's a lady on the ninth floor, and she needs rice, and so they would bring meals up, you know, all over. And I I was truly moved. I mean, it, it, people there were, he would walk through the streets, and they would come up and try to get selfies or, you know, pray around him. And, uh, you know, he was just dispatching things left and right, uh, kind of battling and, and with do you, FEMA, do you think that they had over... Anybody said no, and it, it was quite a miraculous sort of uh, a miraculous few days for me. I have to say, it was. And, and do you think it was the experience he had in Haiti that he was really applying, or is he just a rule breaker who wasn't concerned with federal red tape and was just had this can-do attitude? Yeah, I think it's both things. I think he saw what could happen in Haiti. They did some. They've done some work in Nicaragua. Um, you know, but it's also who he is. You know, he really believes in. Uh, feeding people. He's very smart. He knows how to put food out at the very highest levels. While he was down there, a mini bar in D.C. got a, a um, two Michelin stars, and and they celebrated down in Puerto Rico. Uh, he's got this very low end concept called beef steak, which is um, uh, fast casual sort of thing where you walk in, it's all vegetables and grains that are kind of cooked, at least heated to order, uh, that you can customize your grain bowls. So he's operating on a lot of different levels, but I think he has. You know, he's a, a pretty spiritual guy in a broad use of that term, and he uh, believes that, you know, it's it's uh, it's his work on, on Earth here to feed people. And um, I think he realizes that, uh, you know, he knows he knows his way around a FEMA contract that people from World Central Kitchen do. He knows uh, what it takes to feed people. You know, you've got to come up with a dish you can, things you can deliver, keep them at temperature, prepare in large quantities. Um, you know, he ended up making this kind of, these sort of large, kind of a faux paella, you know, big paella pans. A guy from Florida flew in with these giant paella pans. He'd cook over propane, and then he, you know, bought up every aluminum pan he could find in Puerto Rico and elsewhere. And so he'd load those up with rice and uh, send them out. He got the food trucks who weren't working, obviously, in Puerto Rico because, you know, everything was devastated. He started being able to pay them to come and take all that food out to these neighborhoods they couldn't get food to. And and why why can he do that and FEMA can't? Well, FEMA is locked into contracts, so you know FEMA has to take three bids. They have to have people who, you know, can deliver X amount of food in X amount of time. So you have uh, Red Cross and Salvation Army who are really good at trying to put in disaster systems so they know how to hand out blankets. They know how to set up a command center. They know how to coordinate with local emergency officials. So they're, they know how to tap into that network. They don't know how to cook food. They don't know how to work in a country that, you know, uh, doesn't have any power and cell phones so people can't communicate. So he got satellite phones, and he just started cooking and handing out food, talking to the hospitals. The hospital needs food. Okay, we'll send you hot food. He sort of did it, uh, financed it with his own through his own pockets, through World Central Kitchen, Steve Jobs' widow came down. He had a connection with her, dropped a million dollars. So he was operating in that level. Um, and then when he did get the FEMA contracts to deliver, 
um, you know, they, they were like, you've got to have a drink, you've got to have uh, this kind of protein and sandwiches and a piece of fruit. And he said, well, there's a ton of bottled water on the island. So if you're going to pay me $10 to guarantee that I'm going to deliver a bottle of water with every meal, it's crazy. I, I don't need to do the bottled water. I just can do this. But they, you know, FEMA's got regulations, and so they get uh, kind of muscle-bound in their ability to just get food to people. Um, so he just cut the red tape. I think, um, you know, he had some other revenue streams, and he it was really it really made me see that I think the future of disaster relief food is in large part in the hands of of chefs and people know how to cook food and get it to people, not necessarily in the hands of large organizations like the Red Cross or the Salvation Army. Not not that they don't do great job. Yeah, but no, I see what you mean. But knowing food and how to do food with a singular focus rather than have to take care of seven other things gives you right. that and advantage. And the food that was coming to people from uh, FEMA, you know, they were you'd have Cheez-Its for the starch and maybe some, you know, uh, Slim Jims or something for the protein and a piece of fruit or maybe some fruit leather to qualify as the fruit. These were not, this isn't food that's going to sustain Yeah, it's not body. sustenance. Yeah, no, I had a friend stranded in, in the Virgin Islands, and he was getting um, ready meals, military ready meals. So. Yeah, and those MREs, those are designed for people who are in a disaster situation and need to survive. They're nothing you can eat for two weeks, you know. And also in Puerto Rico, <laughs> they're you know, not feeding you your soul, that's for sure. how to open the sure. plastic package. You've got to find some hot water. You've got to kind of figure out how to make those meals work and they're you know they don't taste that great and uh and they're they're just you know you get any soldier will tell you two weeks of mres you'll be very constipated they're not you know it's just not a good thing yeah wow well that that is that that's kind of amazing to hear and really interesting to get the the insight from on the ground of how he was doing it and that that that's a definite learning about the future planning of getting real feeding people experts into it. You know, one thing was interesting to me, Todd, is the idea of using existing um, food supply networks. So you had, for example, there were eight or nine um, kind of satellite cooking schools that were teaching culinary uh, skills to young people, right? So they were all not operating because there were no, there was no power. So he partnered with uh, these cooking schools, and I think he ended up paying them a little bit, and they ended up um, opening up their facilities and getting these cooking students to come in and cook this paella over, um, you know, over propane. And they he had some specs they had to follow to make these dishes, and and they brought the supplies in, and these kids made the dishes, and then he had another group who'd come in and, you know, volunteers and run the food out to places. So he sort of saw that there were these empty kitchens. And there was a way to make them work. Um, he tapped into the chef's network, and he had a good rotating group of his own chefs and other cooks coming in. And, you know, he had a four-star chef from his Vegas restaurant running this massive sandwich and rice-making operation. And, you know, those guys know how to run a kitchen and put food out. You know, what... Well, and, the, and that, chefs that was are what great I think... at that, right? At taking weird ingredients, putting them together in a very short amount of time and, and making people feel good when they feed them. So, Perfect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that seems like a lot of what he learned from, from the experience in Haiti and what World Central Kitchen is focused on is use your local resources and rather than to try, apply like one-size-fits-all disaster relief plan because then you're going to be, yeah. So I want to shift gears to uh, Me Too just because I'd love to get, I know you've written about it. It's obviously one of the biggest stories of last year, I think continuing to be a huge story in this year. And I think at least from my chair, a lot has been covered on other industries with only little bits 
like you and other people at the Times doing it in food, but I think there's a bigger story still to come in food. And I was kind of curious what what you you think and and about what's to come, and also the other question about you know should people come away from it being that the people who've been accused that their contributions are somehow erased and just don't exist anymore. Well, that is the question, isn't it, about where we're going to put our food icons like, you know, Mario Batali, um, you know, April Bloomfield, whose partner Ken Friedman uh, was engaged in some fairly nefarious behavior with staff members. Um, that's really the question. I think that'll that'll play out over time. I, I do think there probably will be a few more stories that'll come out. Um, part of the problem is, I think, and I talked to a lot of women about this, um, and all of us who, you know, I waited tables and was a short order cook and came up, you know, worked my way through college in the restaurant business. And um, a lot of us talk about how the, the place we sort of learned how to be sexually harassed or sort of had to get our first experiences with it when we were, you know, changing the boysenberry syrup at the IHOP or, you know, whatever our first, you know, I was making pizzas at Little Caesar's Pizza and you, there's the kind of the creepy manager and the like, you know, you sort of, the restaurant industry, I think, has a lot of um, sexual harassment. And then uh, particularly when you get into that kind of, you know, working late at night and you're this, you know, kind of the battlefield mentality with people you're close to and you're young and you're drinking and the lines are blurry. And so I think there is some of that that I, I think people in some ways like and don't want to go away. And then mm. there is the... Um, yeah, it's the rites of passage of coming up in the food world. Yeah. But then I think in. there's that pirate ship mentality that Pete Wells talks about, you know, other people mention where, you know, these managers in these restaurants get a certain amount of power and there's no real uh, clear lines. There's, you know, I think the, the big restaurant corporations have gotten much more serious about it than the more sort of impressive independent restaurants. Um and you know it's it's uh, it's like anything else. I think there's um, there's that weird piece where um, you know tipping is involved. And I, I had a very interesting conversation with Danny Meyer about this, and one reason that he many many years ago wanted to get rid of tipping is because there's that relationship with customers who you know waitresses in particular have to put up with a certain amount of uh, harassment from customers because the customers know that, you know, there's money waiting at the end and the waitresses, that's the deal, right? So you kind of do a little flirting, get a little up the tip a little. Sometimes you have to put up with, you know, the grabby guy ordering the big California cabs, you know, with his buddies at the dinner. You put up with his, you know, annoying pats on the whatever or sexist comments or, you know, just for the tip. And Danny thinks that if you take tipping away, you'll eliminate that kind of uh, power imbalance that comes for for waitresses. I I think, um, you know. Yeah, and I think from from recently talking to him, the jury's a little bit still out. That you know his his rather grand and, and admirable experiment is still sort of playing out, and in, in in what right. what can it accomplish? I don't know how you completely eliminate tipping in this country unless everybody just agrees to do it at one time. I, I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, how that would work, and I think a lot of people who rely on those six-figure incomes at the high-end restaurants um, mm. probably wouldn't like it a lot. Um, Chez Panisse does a fairly good job with that, and they divide the money up equally between front and back of the house, and everybody has a fairer shake. But you know, it's I think that's hard for smaller restaurants. 
What do you think? Is so, tipping should continue? Are you pro-tipping? Um, I think it's a complex issue. I, I think um, it makes a lot of sense to eliminate it, but it's such a complex structure that it and and right if only one person's doing it it's a paradigm shift that is really difficult to change and i'm certainly for people being paid a living wage and um but it, it you know it's a, a big shift in the economic model um and it's a big mentality shift you know people have been trained for more than 50 years to tip so you you've got to educate the customers in that change so um I think there's a lot of good reasons to try to do it. Um, so do you think the 2018 is just going to be more revelations every month, or do you think it's going to die down and people are going to focus on just culture change? Well, you know, the, the, and it's, it's, you know, we listen to a lot of women who um, have stories about various people in the industry. Um, and, it, and it gets difficult because those stories are, are, terrible and, and things that happen to these women are very real. Um, the level at which it becomes news, it, it, the bar is getting a little higher, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, the prominence of the person and the um, degree of harassment uh, and certainly actual cases of abuse or um, or sexual assault, you know, I think if, if, if there are chefs who have been you know, much more assaultive. I think those would be, those are stories that would come forward. I think, um, you know, actually what I think maybe local markets we might see more, like San Francisco Chronicle, for example, did really good work talking about um, uh, what was happening at at Pizzaola and uh, with Charlie Hallowell um, and a couple of his other restaurants. And that's something that we, like the time, like for us, it was not quite a, a national story for us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've just, you know, there are different levels of of um, of coverage, and when we're looking at sort of the broad, uh, you know, the number of chefs around the country, is are we going to write about a local Austin, Texas chef unless he's doing something particularly, really particularly awful? Then it might rise to the level where we would spend time. And these these stories take time. You know, you have to listen to a lot of women. And mm-hmm. a lot of folks don't want to go on the record still, and so you have to, you know, verify their accounts with other people. And it's very emotional to talk about, and it takes time to listen to people's stories. And we certainly want to hear what women say and and give that that time and respect it deserves. Then you have to go through the journalistic process and, you know, corroborate and validate and make sure that you're, you know, for us that we're doing a thorough job. And so these things take a lot of time, you know. Um, if we had 25 more reporters just doing nothing but this, I'm sure that we would have more stories. So I think we'll, I think more will continue to come out. I think it's a real, a real moment. I, someone said to me, it feels like we were all swimming in toxic water and had no idea that it was toxic. And now that we do, it's very difficult to sit in that same water. So um, I think we'll start to see people wanting to move forward in restaurants changing, the, the, not as sexy stories, but you know, discussing good human resource practices, discussing, uh, you know, I mean, here's the thing. This would all be over if people would just stop sexually harassing women. Like, that doesn't, you know, it seems like a simple solution. Yeah, no, just like we we were, just like with tipping, there's a a lot of behavioral experience that's going to have to change, and that's not good. That's a generational thing. Yeah, I, I... 
I, I, but, you know, I, I don't think, um, anyway. So I just feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like more stories will come out. I think we're going to see some shifts that will be more subtle um, in the business, and that's great. Um, you know, I kind of go back. A lot of people say, well, if more women were running kitchens, they wouldn't be like that. And then that puts it on women to make, you know, to make the environment better and takes the responsibility off of men to make it better. So I do wonder. Well, what hopefully Julie one of the great outcomes is that more women will feel more empowered to do what they feel like they want to do and will feel more protected either by their friends or their boss or, or the media to be able to do it. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Kim's predictions for the year ahead in food. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Okay, now that we've covered the heavy stuff, we're going to lighten it up a bit and ask Kim to take out her crystal ball and forecast some trends. So I, I thought we'd do it a little bit like um, speed dating. So we're not going to ask him for lengthy, complex um, explanations or analyses. Just sort of go category, category by category, top of mind, um, what she's seeing in that crystal ball that she's holding right now. So you ready, Kim? So it's like this lightning round. Yeah, it's a lightning round. Exactly. Just don't don't have the lightning strike the crystal ball. That that uh, might create some alchemy. So, w- what do you think in food? And I'm kind of lumping food into like what we eat at home and home cooking. Do do you think it's all about delivery services by drone? Is fermentation totally out? What, what what's in that ball? Well, I think we're really going to see um, just how much people want things delivered uh, home. That I think the meal kit thing is softening a little, but it's turning into more. I think people still want to cook more. I think the whole meal kit thing was an indication that people are cooking more at home. Um, I think the model where you're locked into getting certain, um, you know, certain ingredients, um, and then the quality. I think on some of them has fallen, but I think we might see more localized. You know, everybody thought there was going to be just delivery uh, only restaurants and delivery by drone for. Things I think that is less um, going to be less popular than people thought. Uh, David Chang, you know, he just his delivery only restaurant Ando, uh, they just uh, uh, he just uh, closed that. I think they had something like seven million dollars in venture capital funding and like 
Jimmy mm-hmm. Fallon was an investor, but he, you know, closed it down, and they're integrating with Uber Eats, but and having a couple menu items. Um, you know, Maple shut down last spring. Uh, Sprig and Bento and Spoon Rocket in San Francisco closed. So I think this idea of delivery-only restaurants and delivery services, I think well, that'll get streamlined. I do think people want more food delivered to their house more quickly, and I think that's what we're going to see with the Amazon Whole Foods thing. Although, you know, Whole Foods now is getting gutted because they now they're at this, um, you know, the, the, the way they do their supply is, um, you know, they do sort of like what Walmart does. Like as soon as something's off the shelf, then they, um, uh, then they order more of it, but it takes away that whole local producers putting food on the Whole Foods shelves. Yeah, no, I mean, the bigger your supply chain gets, the harder it is. Yeah. To be, you know, locally sourcing and seasonal. The food hall is an interesting one. You know, Anthony Bourdain just pulled out of his big food hall project in New York. I think food halls are saturated. It's, it's you know, every, um, you know, uh, renovation project in a city and the city renewal projects want to add a food hall now. And, boy, it's hard for people to make money on those stalls in the food hall. So I think the idea of the food hall is probably peaked last year. I think we'll probably see a decline, although I don't mind a good food hall, but, um, you know, these kind of prefab put it up, put 10 businesses in there and hope everybody comes. I think that's on its way down. Um, and what do you think, let's, I I promised a lightning round, so I'm going to cut it off there and say, let's turn to just, you started to cover restaurants and dining out. I, I think I was thinking about what do you think is on the menu at the restaurants in this year? Are we still going to be farm to table with the I think we're going to see a lot more vegan and vegetable-forward stuff. That's going to continue, whether or not the Impossible Burger or this, like, uh, you know, plant-based protein meat substitutes, that a little less inclined to think. I mean, I think they'll have a place, but I don't think they're going to rock everybody's world. But I think people are going to be eating more vegan, more vegetable-forward food. Uh, I think we're going to see, oh, you know, more like, Curry, harissa, peri, peri, you know, um, I think some spice profiles out of Africa will be uh, getting big. I think we're going to, you know, get much more uh, hot hot sauce and pepper educated and kind of figure out. Why Why do you think that is? What's driving that trend or just people are seeking more and more well, things that they have? Well, I think that, that there's a, a real um, urge to... Um, uh, learn more about cultures in a much more, and I hate this word, but a much more authentic way. And so you're having, uh, people are embracing cooks from a lot of different countries in ways they hadn't before. Um, and I think you're, um, you know, the um, the beans and nuts and vegetable cooking that you find in countries in Africa is really uh, quite exquisite and, and, and quite masterful, and it's much less meat-centric in a lot of countries. And so I think those those trends will kind of um, collide. Um, wow. Oh, well, no, that makes sense. And so what about gadgets? Julia really loved her gadgets. And um, are, are you a gadget freak? Is there something you on your know, radar? Do you... I occasionally find one thing that I like and use a lot. And then I think God, I never thought that I would need this, you know, one thing. But there are some things that are good. I it's this The whole thing is whether... Kitchens are going to get to be smart kitchens, so scales that are connected to apps, for example. So I saw this, you know, Vitamix has a thing where you weigh your smoothie stuff on a scale. It's tied into an app that has the recipe, and you 
you know, the, the, the blender itself is kind of a scale and you can put, you know, enough ingredients in there based on a recipe on your app and it'll weigh it for you. So it all, you know, um, containers that are connected to an app. So it will tell you if you have two cups of flour left or not. So when you're at the store, you can go in your app, click into your flour container, see if you have enough flour. Um, so there are a lot of those sort of things, you know, uh, thermometers where you it's on an app and it can monitor like two pots at the same time. Uh, you know, so I think this is just beginning. I'm not sure these are all um, as smooth as we might like. I don't know if, if Julia would have loved, um, you know, uh, if she would have played with a smartphone or not. I guess we might be the <laughs> yeah, wrong generation. Yeah, she was generation. definitely very um, internet skeptical. Well, that gives us a good a, a, a good profile for the year ahead. So uh, I think what I heard from you that I that I took away was that wanting to cook is a trend and how that then works itself out between the grocery store and the meal kit is kind of TBD and that food halls might be on their way out, that vegan and vegetarian and ethnic and African kind of um, influenced or even authentic cuisines might be more on the menu and that smart kitchens and smart gadgets are are probably going to take a bigger stage in the year ahead. So we're going to – thank you very much for that, Kim. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Kim's going to reveal horror personal Julia moment. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? In our last segment, which we like to call the Julia Moment, we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how Julia has inspired them in, your, in their career. So, uh, Kim, what, what's your Julia moment? Well, I, um, back in 1999, when I was a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, um, uh, Jacques Pepin and Julia had just uh, released their, um, the book that they did together. And they were on book tour, and so I was assigned a uh, pal around and and write about Julia and Jacques cooking at home. There was their TV show and their companion book. Um, and a couple things I mean, I love Julia was hilarious because I think then she was, um, oh, I think she was 87 and Jacques was 63. Uh, and she, we, they were sign. I mean, she was just tireless. She would sign books and sign books and sign books and uh, show up for whatever they had set up on the tour. So there was an intrepidness there that I really appreciated. But then when she was ready for something she wanted. I remember she wanted to have uh, Chinese food for lunch, and she said, 
You know, I want someplace that's really Chinese with Chinese people in there and no Americans. And, so, <laughs> and where were you? Were you in San Francisco or where? Yeah, we were in San Francisco. So, okay. um, But the thing that I took away from that and I still see is just um, the beautiful friendships that come in the food world. And I know Julia, um, you know, with the people that she cared about, cultivated those long-standing relationships. And so here you had younger Jacques Pepin with Julia, who at that point was, you know, uh, having a more difficult time getting around and signing books. And he just took such good, like you know, like a younger brother, just took such good care of her, made sure the books were in front of her to sign, got her to the Chinese restaurant she wanted to eat at. And the love between them was so amazing. And I, I really will never forget just thinking, you know, the food world can make some good friendships. And here's a great example of of how, you know, these two titans of cooking were, were taking good care of each other. And and up until 87, she was doing the work. She was signing the books. She was, you know, had, wanted to go eat interesting food. Um, she was just really in the game. And, and for me, it was a good role model. I thought, you know, when I get older, I want to end up like those two. So it was uh, it was lovely. Well, that is, that is a great Julia moment, I, I think, and a great way to sum up uh, this episode with uh, f- the food relationships equaling love, and that's what you took away. What what a what a lovely thought, and what a, a great treat to to be able to talk to you, Kim. Well, it was my great pleasure, and thank you so much for this time. My pleasure as well. I can't. I look forward to the next time. So, thanks everyone for listening. Let us know you, what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook, search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter at JuliaChildJCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. You can follow Kim Severson's writing via the New York Times, and you can learn more about her work beyond the times on kimseverson.com. She, it, Severson is S-E-V-E-R-S-O-N. And she's a frequent tweeter. Watch out. Her Twitter handle is at Kim Severson. So thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.